Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. And as you're attorney, I have one little piece of unfinished business from last week's sermon. I've been uh, reminded by uh, several people since then that, uh, in fact, as I admitted, I'm not a good storyteller at all, that I did never get to the end of the story with the illustration I used about the man looking for his brother in Vietnam. And uh, I've been reminded sometimes rather, uh, uh, I won't say harshly, but... Uh, uh, very pointedly, that uh, I should not leave everyone hanging. So here's the rest of the story. The man, Don Dawson was his name, uh, looking for his brother in Vietnam, um, never found his brother. His brother was indeed dead. And, of course, in the jungle, somebody who dies, a body that isn't there for long. But he did find eyewitnesses that knew for certain that his brother was dead. And he came home after almost a year, having spent some time in captivity himself, uh, with the certainty that he knew what happened to his brother, though he could not bring his remains home, uh, that he knew for certain that he was not just missing, that he was dead. And of course, our elder brother who has gone in search of us has uh, much better results than that, for he has raised us from the dead to bring us home. What a glorious a truth that is. Well, Genesis 3 this morning. Uh, in spite of the joyful expectation that the holiday season always brings, it seems that there's always plenty of bad news if you dare to pick up a newspaper or turn the television on and, uh, or get on the Internet and read the news. There's just always bad news, not to mention the terrible uh, stories of personal tragedy that never make the news. People we know whose lives are filled with unspeakable pain and hopelessness. So we might ask, why doesn't God do something about this mess? No wonder the psalm writer laments, how long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Why hasn't God answered when people have prayed and cried out in agony? Well, dear people, he has. And he does, and he will. This morning I want us to go back to the beginning, to the day when sin entered God's creation. And right there, as we see the terrible effects of sin beginning to take its toll, we also see the mercy which God uh, shows, which will eventually triumph. In these weeks before Christmas, I want us to look at some of these ancient prophecies concerning Christ's coming. Well, let me read it. Genesis 3, familiar text, I suspect, to all of you, beginning with verse 8 and reading down to uh, verse 24, the end of the chapter. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, Well, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made, God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat or, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm convinced that we have in this passage an historical account of real people and real things happening. But I'm not here to argue that point this morning, for even if you think this is only an old biblical legend, you cannot escape the truths which the Spirit of God sets before us here. Two great truths that cannot be denied that I want us to just reflect on this morning. The first is this. Sin has shattered God's world. Sin has shattered God's world. As our country is overrun with uh, potentially catastrophic problems, there's no shortage of opinions as to what would solve our situation. But seldom does anyone, seldom does any solution take into account the real problem, the problem that our text explains, that sin has shattered the world. In the verses just preceding our text, we read of the entrance of sin into the world. And frankly, it doesn't look like any big thing to us. Just eating a forbidden fruit. Oh, but in that sinful act, Adam and Eve disregarded God's command, chose instead to indulge the appeal of the senses and embrace the lies of the deceiver, and so dared to usurp God's own place, blatantly disobeying him in a vain hope that we will become like God. And in our text, we see the terrible devastation that sin brought. The many ways in which sin shattered God's world. So let me go through some of the ways. So we see that first, we see that sin shattered our relationship to God. We see that right away in verse 8. God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, presumably a time of fellowship between God and the man and the woman whom he had made in his image. 
But the man and the woman don't show. They're over hiding in the bushes somewhere. For you see, the relationship has been broken. Man's very nature was changed and we became alienated from our Creator. As one author described it, obedience has given way to rebellion. Openness has given way to shame. Responsibility has given way to guilt. And freedom has given way to bondage. And as we proceed through this section to the very end of the chapter, that shattering of man's relationship to God is only confirmed for in the very final verses, verses 22 to 24, God banished man from the garden and set a guard to keep him out. That guard was kept by the cherubim, the heavenly host, the angelic beings, whose, who other passages describe as continually declaring God's holiness. But you see, man could no longer stand in the face of God's holiness, for sin shattered our relationship to our God. Oh, but it didn't end there. That's just the beginning. Sin shattered the relationship between the man and the woman. We see that devastating effect of sin right away. In verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Wow, what a change from the last chapter where Adam was saying uh, with joyful delight, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And now he abandons her. He distances himself from her. He blames her for what he knowingly did himself. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sin shatters the marriage relationship. Indeed, this was not just a passing incident. In verse 16, the Lord told the woman this tension would now become the norm in this shattered, sinful world. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That same phrase is used in chapter 4, uh, where the Lord tells Cain that, quote, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The uh, biblical scholar uh, Susan Foe explains in a theological journal, these words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle and tyranny and domination. And you and I have seen it in all its ugliness, time and time again. Wives manipulating and evading their responsibility to their husbands and husbands abandoning and accusing and dominating and abusing their wives for sin continues to shatter the relationship between men and women. Oh, but there's even more. Sin shatters the relationship between man and the creation. This world was so perfect as God created it. He gave man responsibility to rule the earth, and so man enjoyed the benefits of the garden 
while tending it as a responsible steward. But those days are gone. The man used the good things of the creation to rebel against his creator. And so God cursed the earth because of man. Oh, man and woman would still live and be fruitful and multiply, but with great pain and struggle, women would bring children into the world. And the man and woman would still continue to exercise dominion over the earth, but the earth would not willingly submit. Only by the sweat of his brow could man uh, exert his will. And in the end, the earth will win the struggle. For man who came from dust will die and return to the dust of the earth. And to this day, that shattering of the relationship between man and creation continues to grow worse. Indeed, centuries later, the Apostle Paul writes that the whole creation continues to groan. As in the pains of childbirth, waiting to be liberated from this bondage to decay. Bondage to which it was subjected because of man's sin. Sin shatters the relationship between man and the creation. Oh, but it's even worse than that. Sin shatters life itself. Of course, you know the penalty God promised. If man were to disobey, God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. That death was not just the death of fellowship with the Creator. It was not just the death of marital bliss. It was not just the death of harmony with the creation. It was also the very personal death of the man and woman. They were expelled from the garden and handed over to the hostile elements with the promise that their demise was inevitable. For sin shatters God's world. This morning I long to make you see the pervasiveness of sin. You can look around to you and you can see all kinds of beauty in the earth and beauty in people, but you have never seen one inch of the beautiful creation as God made it. You have never enjoyed for one second the perfect relationships which he designed. Even the best and the most perfect things that you have ever known are only a poor shadow of what they were. You have only seen the artist's masterpiece by viewing what's left when it's been marred by the flood and the fire. You've only seen the potter's beautiful vase as you've tried to pick up the pieces off the floor after it's been shattered. You've only tasted the delicacies of God's feast by eating the scraps that you dug out of the dumpster. So totally has sinned, shattered God's world. But don't you blame the Lord for the trouble, you see. He did not make this mess. 
Mankind brought this on himself. Adam sold us out. And the truth is you and I have continued to do the same thing. I think God wants us to see the ugliness of the way sin has destroyed the beauty of his creation so that we might hate sin. That we might loathe it and be repulsed by it and walk as far away from it as possible. For though sin may look so innocent and feel so good and seem like such a small little thing, in reality, it alienates us from our Creator, the only source of any good thing, the one who knows what is truly best for us, the one to whom we owe all allegiance and love. Sin destroys the most precious family relationships, turn our, turns our homes into war zones, turns our love into hatred, turns tender care into tyranny and selfless service into angry vindictiveness. Sin also destroys the beauty of the creation as stewardship becomes exploitation, as people made in God's image become expendable, as the creator himself gets abandoned in favor of some mother earth, and indeed, eventually, sin kills us everyone. Sin has shattered God's world. Oh, but there's a second truth, a glorious truth, unfolded here right in the, at the beginning when sin came into the world. And that truth is God has shown mercy. God has shown mercy. In a passage which tells us of the fall of man and the devastation of the sin of sin and God's curse upon the earth, one would hardly expect to find good news. But to our delight, right here in the middle of sin and judgment, we also see that God has shown mercy. Again, let me skip down through the passage and point out some of the various ways in which this is true. First of all, God shows mercy in that man does not immediately die. Think about it. This is a startling thing. God gave a clear command with a very specific promised punishment. Do not eat. If you eat, you die. The man and the woman violated the command and they ate. Therefore, they must face the certain punishment and die. So... What was the Lord doing, walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, calling out, where are you? Where are you? Calvin answers eloquently. Why then does he call them to undergo examination? Except that he has care for their salvation. There would be no need of any trial of the cause of any solemn form of judgment in order to condemn us. Wherefore, while God insists on extorting a confession from us, he acts rather as a physician than as a judge. 
You see, in the very fact that man did not die, the second he took the first bite, that indicates God was showing mercy. And God's dealt with you that way too, hasn't he? You too have sinned against him. And you go on living. And you draw another fresh breath. And your heart continues to beat. And you enjoy good things from his merciful hand. Do you not realize that God... It's, it's not that God doesn't care about your sin. But God's goodness is designed to turn you in repentance back to him. God is still showing mercy. Oh, but it wasn't just that man didn't immediately die. God did more. God mercifully created enmity, hostility between mankind and the serpent who deceived him. Now this is the most curious thing. There in the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> Satan brought the deceiving lies against God's truth and God's commands. And man made a choice, and man chose to go with Satan's lies. He committed treason. He abandoned allegiance to the Creator, and he gave allegiance to the deceiver. So we would assume that man is now on Satan's side against God, and that uh, he only awaits God's judgment against Satan and himself, well, yes and no. Man did come under dominion of darkness, the kingdom of the evil one, but God did not just let his creatures go so easily. God put enmity between the woman's descendants and Satan and his host, the deceiver. It would forever be a conflict for God looked toward the day when he would send a deliverer to plunder Satan's household and rescue his creation out of Satan's hand. Which brings us to the greatest expression of God's mercy, that God showed mercy in foretelling Christ's victory. We see it there in verse 15. God speaking to Satan said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is widely recognized as the first promise of the gospel in the, in the Bible. Here God promises that one day the offspring of the woman Interestingly, he's not called the offspring of man, for this is a reference to Christ Jesus, Mary's baby, conceived of the Holy Spirit. That seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent of Satan. But he will do so at the cost of a serious blow to himself. The serpent will strike his heel. Now what is this about? It is clearly a promise of the victory which Christ won on the cross. Christ Jesus himself said that the cross would be the downfall of the evil one. And the New Testament explains that by that cross of Christ, Jesus made a public spectacle and defeated 
the evil one. But Jesus did so only at the cost of himself being stricken with agonizing death. But you see, right here at the beginning, God is showing mercy by foretelling the victory that is to come many centuries later. And folks, if Adam was being, if God was being merciful to give Adam a hint of hope, of victory, a hint of salvation yet to come, what kind of mercy has he shown us who have the whole account of Jesus a life and death and resurrection written and verified and preserved and translated into our language and put into our hands that we might have God's explanation of how he came to save us. God showed mercy in telling us of the victory of Christ. Oh, but he went even further. He showed mercy by covering the man and woman's shame. What a pitiful sight we have here in the garden. Adam and Eve, once beautiful and confident, governing God's paradise, now naked and filled with shame, hiding in the bushes. But God, having just foretold his plan to show mercy, mercy actually acted immediately. He killed an animal, took its skin, made clothes for the man and woman. It was an act in which it is difficult not to see the coming requirement for the death of the innocent lamb to make atonement and to cover man's sins. And of course, Jesus is that final lamb of God who atoned for our sins and covers us with his own righteousness. Oh, these are profound and wonderful truths, all depicted so simply right here at the beginning as God covers man's shame, thus showing mercy. And folks, this is what we still need, is it not? God's atonement to restore our souls and his covering of our shame. Finally, we see God's mercy as he expelled Adam and Eve from the garden. In a sense, the expulsion from the garden is a terrible picture Look at it again in the last verses, verse 24. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Man has lost virtually everything. He lost his innocence. He lost his peace with God. He lost peace within his home. He lost his beauty. He lost the beauty of God's presence. And now he loses his home. And he's expelled. And eventually he'll lose his life. Why did God go so far as to expel him? From paradise. Well, it says right there in verse 22, he must not be allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now, there's much we do not know about this 
But this we can understand. God was not willing for man to just live in this mess, in this sin-shattered world, in this broken, alienated existence. He was not willing for that to just continue forever. So God expelled him and guarded the tree of life in hope, looking toward the day when God himself would gain for the man and the woman restoration and eternal life. Even God's severest chastening was an expression of mercy. Mercy. Now, dear people, I certainly wish I could be eloquent enough to make you hate sin, but I wish even more I could describe adequately the wonder of God's grace to us. God owed Adam and Eve nothing but death. And yet, in at least five different ways, God showed them mercy. God didn't just promise that mercy would come someday, though he certainly did make that promise. Here we find the first promise of a deliverer. But God immediately began to show mercy to his wayward creatures, even as they lived in the sorrow of the consequences of their sins. And you see, that's where we live this morning. Certainly we feel the awful effects of sin that has come into the world. Nothing is as it should be. There's something wrong with everything. The world is a shattered place in so many ways. But God has already been merciful. We have seen the fulfillment of of the promises made to Adam. The seed of the woman has come, Jesus, the son of, of, of man, the son of God. The fateful blow has already been delivered to Satan, that serpent. Jesus died in apparent defeat, but God raised him from the dead victorious. And now there's no question about the outcome. God's total restoration of creation is a certainty. But we don't see it all yet. We too wait in hope for these things to be completed. We wait for Jesus' return in glory. We wait for the curse to be removed from the earth. We wait for restored bodies that will no longer die. We wait for the restoration of the whole world. We wait confident that God has and will show mercy. This world is a shattered place. We read about it every day. We hear about it endlessly. But today we recall that God has shown mercy. From the very beginning, the promise was there that God's deliverer would come and defeat the evil one and restore the creation. And during this Advent season, we rejoice that his merciful deliverance has come in the birth of our Savior. And meanwhile, we wait in hope, continuing to believe that Christ will come again and restore all things to himself, both us in our brokenness and this broken world in which we live. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we take sin so lightly. And because we take sin so lightly, we can take mercy so lightly. And in this text, we see this morning how devastating sin is to your creation. How it has shattered everything that we know about life. 
even life itself. But I thank you, Father, that here we also see the promise and, and, and the beginnings of mercy. Mercy that's greater than all of our sin. Mercy that's more profound than anything we could dream of. So, Lord, may we not ignore or deny our sin, but may we look and hope to our Savior and wait for the restoration that you've promised us. Thank you for your mercy and grace to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.